Now, uh, we are on page two of section one, uh, Roman numeral two, the unity of man. And we start by saying that the human race is a unity in God's mind. He made Adam and Eve, and from Adam and Eve came the rest of the human race. Take a look at Acts chapter 17, will you please? <coughs> this is Paul's statement on Mars Hill. It's critical for several reasons. And I don't want to get too sociological here, but sociology ought to have theological roots. And our approach to the human race ought to have theological roots. Notice how Paul starts out in verse 24. He announces God and just simply declares God uh, to be the creator. Uh, he made the world and all things therein. He's not worshipped with men's hands. Verse 25. And he has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed in the bounds of their habitation. God made the entire human race of one blood. That, where that goes at the very beginning and where I, what, what we need to say, I do not believe that there is, that there are such things as various races. There is a human race. We are all made of one blood and uh, we are different nationalities. Uh, and by the way, that it is a study from the book of Genesis. It is a study for another place. But you get into the generations of Noah uh, into chapter 10 and the sons of Noah and we are told how Noah's sons and their descendants spread out upon the earth and uh, and the, the sons uh, the sons of Ham, Yisraim was one of them, that's the word for Egypt and and uh, the Cushites were descendants of, of Ham as well. Uh, that is simply a statement of fact. There's nothing uh, pejorative about that at all. And that ought, to, that ought to say something. Uh, in reading Baptist history for another course that I'm teaching right now, uh, I spent some time last night uh, reading about, well, it was the division of the Baptists in, in the United States of America in 1845, and the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, in essence, uh, came into existence when the Missionary convention in the North said that if, they, if a slaveholder were to apply for appointment as a missionary and were to insist on continuing to own slaves, he would not be appointed. And that was early in 1845 and about the middle of 1845 in Augusta, Georgia, the, the uh, Southern Baptist Convention uh, came into existence. But uh, that whole issue of slavery and one of the men who wrote against it at that point raised the issue. He said, some of you men own slaves. You are wealthy, fabulously wealthy off of the labor of slaves. Uh, you treat them terribly. I'm paraphrasing now. And then he says, you will give of your wealth that you have earned by slaves to send missionaries to Africa and you will not lift a finger to help your slaves. You can understand how that point is very well taken, you know. And of course, you understand as well. Most of us are uh, children of the North in our in our roots, and so we approach that uh, probably wanting to say right on to that. But uh, at any rate, it was a it was a very divisive issue, but. But this goes to that. We are of one blood. And uh, oh, when we come to Christmas, we will sing O Holy Night. And you'll hear somebody sing O Holy Night. Do you remember the line in about the third verse of O Holy Night? The slave is my brother. That was an anti-slavery song written uh, about, that, about that period of time. But uh, we, do, we do need to understand that, and it ought to foster in us not only a genuine compassion, uh, but let's say a fundamental respect for those who are 
different than we are. And let me tell you, I don't care if it's a black culture and a white culture, if it's an Asian culture and, and a North American, when I go to Korea or wherever, uh, uh, when cultures clash, it can be a, and some of you, you who have traveled internationally know what I'm talking about. Uh, when cultures clash, it can be an uncomfortable thing and it can be a, uh, it can be a shocking thing, can it not? And, uh, and so uh, we've got all of those issues, but God made us all of one blood. And that is the, that is the important fact that I, want to, that I want to point out here. But notice number two under that, before we go to the constitutional nature of that. This also sets the stage for salvation history. Because from the very beginning of sin in the human race, God deals with the entirety of mankind. It ought not to be lost on us that when Adam and Eve sinned, not only in sin does man hide from God. We will talk about that a little later. Not only did they hide <coughs> themselves from God, it was God who took the initiative, King seeking Adam and Eve after the fall, but when God dealt with Adam and Eve, he was dealing with the entire human race. And when he says, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, he is making a promise to the entire human race. So that is, uh, it is for that reason and reasons like that, that this little section has some importance. All right, now, let's look at the constitutional nature of man. And... Uh, this is a section where uh, we can get into debates, and there has there has been a lively debate over the years. And it's interesting that there has been in the last oh, 25, 30 years uh, some shift of thought in this, and I'll make some note of it. Scripture is very clear. Genesis 1, 26, 27, God says, let's make man in our image and God made man in his own image, and the image and likeness of God made he man. That, that is clear. And the word likeness puts a stamp of peculiar worth and dignity on man. And let me just jump ahead of the story. Um, let's see here. Uh, Brother Flack, would you get Genesis 9 and verse 6 for us, please? And Casey, would you get James 3 and verse 9? And let's just listen to how Scripture builds on this concept of man made in the likeness of God. Right? Genesis 9, verse 6. <clears throat> Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And so when God pronounces and gives to human government in a very nascent form, the power to enforce capital punishment for murder, what makes murder so egregious? If I take a man's life, I have taken the life of one who's made in the image of God. Well, we can understand that. We can all look at that pretty self-righteously. Next one, Old camel knees, as James was known, the old prayer is going to get to your tongue, and this isn't so comfortable. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Ouch! That's, uh, that quick meddling went to preaching real quick, didn't it? That we... That we uh, that we have to deal with with this issue, but uh, we had better be careful how we speak of our brother, uh, how we speak of another human being, because we curse man, and man's made in the similitude of God. That's pretty serious stuff. So uh, that's that's what you call theology becoming practical, real quick, and um, it is a it is a fair fair warning. Anytime we look at it. All right, good. So uh, the word likeness puts a stamp of peculiar worth and dignity on man. And of course, we go to Psalm 8. Uh, God, God uh, gave man dominion over all the fish of the sea, uh, made him just a little lower than the angels. Hebrews 2 uh, deals with that same concept. 
But then the word image does not refer to physical form. It seems to indicate that man's body was fashioned in the form of God's design and God's purpose. Not that man in physical form looks like God. That's not the idea at all. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, he is, though he uses anthropomorphisms, and we hear about the hand of the Lord and the arm of the Lord, uh, and, uh, and God uses those illustrative things. Uh, he is a spirit. No man has seen him nor can see him, but by the same token, uh, that body was fashioned in the form of God's design and purpose. The, 100, the 139th Psalm be right there. Remember the 139th Psalm, uh, how David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And boy, when you start dealing with all of the intricate things in these human bodies that can and do go wrong, we find out in a big hurry that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, do we not? Yes, sir. Now, how do we get from the uh, being made in the image of God um, and then to the statement <clears throat> being fashioned in the form of God's design and purpose? I'm not seeing the um, connection. There. All right, let's go back to Genesis 1. Uh, Genesis uses two, two words here, and I'm taking off on the two words. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, is it? Yes. Uh, now, let's start in verse 26. Yes, 126. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So I'm going from image and likeness. That is the point. Does that help? No, I, I'm not sure how we get, how you get to be from, okay, because maybe it's just the language, but I don't, I don't understand image and likeness mm -hmm. translating to God's design and purpose. For the body. Yeah. Like, okay. Because image and likeness means totally, two totally different things than it does as form and like or uh, design and purpose. Okay. Man, you're making me think here. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll have to, I'll have to, uh, I'll have to give that some thought. Where I'm going to end up is the fact that we are made in the moral likeness of God. We are made in the spiritual likeness of God, and that. The body reflects that in that it is, how do I want to say this, the soul holder, the life holder, and God formed the body as well, Genesis chapter 2, out of the dust of the earth. So the body is of God's design, and man, the entire package, even fallen, is a reflector of the image of God. Does that help? Okay. All right. And I am going to make a note, and I'm going to go back and do some exegetical work on that. Yes, sir. Um, I know I, I've already I already read the the part in Erickson where he talks about this. He gets really deep into it, talking about what does the image of God mean? Talking about like is it relationally or in? Um, and he just talks about all these different mm -hmm. possible meanings of of the likeness. So I, I don't know because or. That, that image could talk about it. Like basically a lot of what it came down to was just every kind of everything that makes us different than, and everything that makes us different than animals. Like, like the conscience and the will and you know, those, emotions those and all go, yes, that all goes to it. That man is distinct from the animal creation. And if we were to shut ourselves up to a book study in the book of Genesis, we could list a whole series of things. Man capable of thought man capable of classifying the rest of the creation, whole series of things that distinguishes man from the animal <coughs> My point here is that spiritually, certainly we are made in the image of God. God formed the body. God created the body. And man's body is of divine design and reflects something in the image of God. That's where I'm going with it. Yeah. But I'm glad you I'm glad you pointed it out. I've got an ex 
X marks the spot, and I'm going to go back and uh, and uh, take another look at that. All right. Very good. I don't have an X. I've got a circle around the whole thing. All right. Good. Thank you. Okay. And um, certainly, you see, you see the point from capital punishment in Genesis 9 and the use of the tongue in James chapter 3. Okay. All right. Good. And obviously, though you are dealing with the soul part of man when you commit murder, you are also assaulting the physical part of man by definition to commit the act. And thus you are, again, attacking that which is made in the image of God. So there's the there's the connection. Okay. And I will I what 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 uh, what I need to do and I can do and with the Lord's help I will do. I want to go back into Genesis 1 26 27 and I want to I want to just do a good old fashioned exegesis of those I have translated those verses, I know that. But uh, it's been a very, very long time, and I will go back and, and do some detailed study there. And if I get to it over the weekend, I'll come back to you with a report on Wednesday. Can't promise you that I will, but I'll give it a shot. Okay? Good. All right, sir. Now, uh, <coughs> little b, the next point is that Christ would later assume that form that he took upon himself human form and you have that in Colossians 1 and verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God but you get it uh, for Paul's purpose in arguing with that or arguing with in openly refuting that um, uh, that um, incipient Gnosticism most folks believe it was a heresy that developed into Gnosticism later, but that idea that you worship angels and you worship spirit beings and all of that, all of that business and the concept that matter is inherently evil. And John refutes it in 1 John, that which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled of the word of life. And Paul's, if I don't know how, you ladies, I'm sure not a one of you in the room likes to do it. I enjoy it. I don't know how many of you guys do like watching boxing. But this is a this is a straight left jab and it connects on the nose. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2 and verse 9. And uh, Paul is combating that idea of the inherent evil of material, of matter. And he is telling us that Jesus Christ, in human form, revealed God. Hebrews 1, being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So there is some relationship between the image of God and man's physical form. Yes, ma'am. What form was Christ before he took on his body? You know what? I the only thing I can tell you is I think we have to assume that as the Father is, as the Spirit is, he was a spirit being and took upon himself the corporal and temporal limitations of the human body at his incarnation. Okay? Now, uh, let's go beyond that. Capital B, the Bible teaches, well, I'm, I'm ahead of myself here on my notes, aren't I? Sorry about that. For you who are following, following me on this section, I'm sorry. I need to get back to page three, don't I? How did I get so far ahead? Okay. That is where I want to be. The Bible teaches that man has both a physical and a spiritual nature. He is both body and soul. 
Matthew 10, 28, Acts 2, several passages of Scripture uh, tell us this. Scripture sometimes speaks of man as having spirit, soul, and body. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23. Uh, other times it seems to indicate that man is only two parts. Tell you what, let's do. Uh, Melissa, if you would get for us 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and uh, Sarah, if you would get 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Will you please? And we'll just get these two places where Scripture does it. This is not the only, these are the only <coughs> places. All right, go ahead. One second, sorry. And the very God of peace sanctify you holy, and I pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body could preserve blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. All right, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. All right, you've got the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved. And so, and, and scripture is, oh, do I use the word ambivalent? Uh, scripture does that several places. Uh, the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, so numbers of places where, where Scripture does that. Uh, and this has been a battle, been a, been a thing that has uh, been a battle over the years. Uh, and there have been folks who have been willing certainly to break fellowship over it. I remember sitting in systematic theology class and Dr. Pickering uh, almost laughed at the battle. He didn't think there was very much to it. But at any rate, let's, let's just work our way through this. Uh, number one, some argue that there are only two parts to man, the material body and the immaterial solar spirit, and that it is impossible to divide the two, that is, those two. Uh, this position is known as dichotomy. Hodge holds this position. Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian, the scriptures teach that God formed a body, the body, of, the body of man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life, uh, the breath of life, and he became a living soul. According to this account, a man consists of two distinct principles, a body and a soul, the one material, the other immaterial, the one corporal, the other spiritual. It is involved in this statement, first, that the soul of man is a substance, and secondly, that it is a substance distinct from the body. So that in the constitution of man, two distinct substances are included, the material, the immaterial. Now, here are the arguments for dichotomy. Creation accounts attribute two parts to mankind. Genesis 2, man became a living soul. Both words are used of man and the animal creation. Uh, let's look, uh, Sarah, if you will get Sarah Hall, if you'll get uh, Ecclesiastes 3.21, and Cassidy, if you will get Revelation 16.3 for us, please. Uh, let's look at this. Both, uh, both terms, spirit and soul, I think is what he's saying here, are used of both man and the animal creation. Go ahead, Sarah. Okay. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth. All right. So in this place, Solomon talks about that immaterial part of man and animal, though they're different, both of them have one. All right. Cassidy. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. All right. So he's talking about all the sea-dwelling creatures and every living soul died. The point is soul, spirit can be used both of man and the animal creation. Then the terms soul and spirit are interchangeable in Scripture. And in this case, both are used of Christ. Uh, all right, Herbert, Brother Herbert, uh, if you'll get um, uh, John 12, 27, I am going to get a bunch of names down here sooner than later. John 12, 27, and Sarah, if you will get uh, uh, John 13, 21, please. 
Now John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. And so here Christ speaks of his soul. John 13, 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. You see the point. Soul, spirit, used interchangeably. And the dichotomist comes to that and says, Man has an immaterial part. It can be called soul or spirit. Yes, sir. Do um, you think, would Christ have said, um, I mean, would Christ have had a similar soul as we have a soul, you think? Or is that just once we get back to the material, immaterial? I, the easy answer is, one year from right now, I'll be teaching Christology and pneumatology, and I'll see you there. Okay. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's, that's the easy answer. I'm not, let's put it this way, without any doubt, he became flesh like as we are. Hebrews chapter 2 is very clear on that. And the incarnation of Christ, though he was sinless, though he was virgin born and without sin, let's make sure we've got that down. In his, in his humanity, Hebrews says he was made like unto his brethren. So in that immaterial part of man, I have to take it that he was as you and I are. All right? I, I, think, we, I think we have to do that. And when we get into the humanity of Christ and we talk about that in Christology, you look at his emotions. He stood at Lazarus, grieved, and wept. And he was subject to fatigue. He went to sleep in a boat. He, uh, he was hungry. Uh, all of that physically and what we would call mentally, emotionally. He was like we are. Yes, sir. I was just going to say, that the fatigue and the hunger and the sleeping, wouldn't that be all physical, not necessarily spiritual? Yeah, it would. That would, that would reflect the physical. But the grief of standing at Lazarus' grief and weeping certainly goes to the emotional, the immaterial part of him as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It, and it, it's, it's all part of his incarnation. Yeah. All right. Anyone else? Okay, now, and then both of these terms are used in reference to man as well. And uh, we've, we've seen some of that uh, already. I think, we can, I think we can pass over that unless anybody really uh, needs to go further with it. Number two at the top of page four, others, now these, that's the dichotomous position. Others argue on the basis of passages like Hebrews 4.12, Luke 1.46 and 47, that Scripture declares three parts, or describes three parts to man. And this position is known as trichotomy. The view originated in Greek philosophy. Clement of Alexandria and Origen were proponents of it. Uh, it has been held by good Bible-believing theologians. Uh, Franz Delich, uh, any of you read the Old Testament commentary written by Kyle and Dalich. Uh, Franz, Franz, you have? Franz Dalich, it just so happens, uh, this is just another piece of it, uh, Franz Dalich was a converted Jew and uh, died in, I think it's 1891. I've used some of his material on Messianic prophecy as well. But Franz Delich held this position, Louis Sperry Schaefer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, held this position, and it is a very common position. Uh, I don't, I'd have to go back and check. I think you'd have to say it's the position in the Schofield Reference Bible, probably, uh, which means that in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, most Bible-believing Americans at least were exposed to it, and probably a majority held it. 
Uh, those who hold this view argue that spirit and soul and body represent three distinct forms. They argue that the body is the material part of man, and there is no debating or questioning that. They further hold that the soul is the animal or life form of man, and they believe that the spirit is the spiritual, the God-related part of man. The arguments for trichotomy rest upon statements like the ones in Mark 12, 1 Corinthians 15, 44. Uh, we read the one in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Luke uh, 1, 46 and 47. I quoted Hebrews 4 and verse 12. All three forms, all three terms appear in the same passage. Now, here is what has become the new, I don't want to call it a twist, I think and we often can do this, and we can do it in any area of life. Theology is a real good place where we do it. We build these boxes, and we think in those boxes. And uh, sometimes the box is more restrictive than Scripture. And we never have the right to think outside the box of the Word of God. We are, we are dealing with revealed truth in the Word of God. But there has been this dichotomy, trichotomy debate. And the first place that I ever preached in southern Minnesota, uh, it was a very interesting thing. Uh, there was a, a man, he was kind of a patriarch. Uh, he and his wife had eight children, and, and uh, uh, several of them were in this little assembly. It was never, the thing is still there to this day. It never has been organized as a church. It was 70 years old in the 1960s. But there was a brother and a dad who were at each other's throats and one almost called the other a heretic over dichotomy and trichotomy. And it was, it was that, and, and remember, I'm, I'm talking the early 60s, I started seminary, I hate to tell you how long ago it was, 1963, but uh, I, when I was in seminary, that it was in that context and at that period of time, Dr. Pickering, uh, he said, yeah, it's something you've got to talk about. It's something you've got to deal with. And uh, he, I don't remember if he came down on one side or the other. And I have been at different points in my time. I had to look at it and I said, man, how you divide soul and spirit? You can't divide the immaterial. You can't divide the invisible. I'm a dichotomist. And other times I'm a trichotomist. Uh, it's, it's one of those things. But I do believe that Millard Erickson and Ron McCune have done us a favor here. By the way, uh, let me say just a word. It is a good resource. I am assuming it is in the library. Uh, Dr. Ronald McCune uh, began his teaching career at Central Seminary in Minneapolis <clears throat> either the fall of 1966 or the fall of 1967. I graduated in the spring of 67. I never caught Dr. McCune for a class. And he taught at Central for... 20 years, more or less 20 years, and went to Detroit and was dean of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, was president of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, now retired, living down south of where I live in Florida, down in the Fort Myers area, and I understand uh, is uh, losing his hearing. Uh, he is, if he's, I don't think he's 80, but he is upper 70s but has had a long career. And Dr. McCune, Detroit Seminary, in the last two years, has published his systematic theology in three volumes. And I, he was kind enough to give me his notes several years ago, and so I had all of his systematic theology notes, and I now have the three volumes of his systematic theology and you can pick him up and read him for reference here in the library. I think its greatest usefulness, more than in the classroom, will be for the pastor uh, in, his, uh, in his study when the pastor wants to go and get a good hands-on view of something. It'll be a, it'll be a good resource. 
But when you go to doing some research, uh, the McEwen Systematic Theology is well worth taking a look at. But anyway, uh, Erickson is working against the concepts of dualism, that man is distinguishable, divisible parts. And by the way, dualism is a philosophy that can get into, can, can be a problem in numbers of areas. Uh, for instance, when we deal with the conflict between God and Satan, we have to disabuse ourselves of the concept of dualism. We are not dealing with a, can I get pop on you just a little bit here? I'm going to tell you about all I know about it. We're not dealing with a clash of the titans. We are not dealing with a competition between two equal forces. The battle between Satan and God is a rebellious creature who has taken on Creator. And the outcome was determined before the conflict ever started. Creature is not going to conquer Creator. And we have to disabuse ourselves of any idea of equality between the parts. Is the devil real? Yes. Are we in a real spiritual warfare? The Bible has a lot to say about it. But aren't you glad that Paul can simply write and say, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Uh, Peter can tell us uh, we've got to be sober and be vigilant. For our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resists steadfast in the faith? And when we come to first uh, to James chapter 4, resist the devil, he will flee from you. He is a conquered foe. And Colossians 1 and 2, Jesus spoiling principalities. Uh, the whole argument of the book of Ephesians and Colossians uh, is to that very fact. And uh, that, uh, that the Lord Jesus conquered Satan. And it's in that context of that demonism, that occultism of, of Asia Minor and of Ephesus that Paul writes that and that John writes in First John chapter, in the book of First John to deal with that same issue. But at any rate, uh, he's working against that concept of, dealism, of dualism, that man is, is distinguishable, divisible parts, and monism that reduces man to a single, a single materialistic entity. And he argues that except for the intermediate state between death and resurrection, this is where he gets out of the box. This is good. He argues that except for the intermediate state between death and resurrection, Scripture sees embodied man as a single entity who relates to his physical environment and is also capable of fellowship with God. That is us right now. When we are with Christ in eternity, we're going to be in glorified bodies. And Erickson's point is that except for the intermediate state between death and resurrection, except for that state, man as a soul lives in a body and in the whole kitten caboodle relates to God. Kitten caboodle is not a theological term. You understand that? Okay. But uh, yes, sir. So um, the difference between dichotomy and, and dualism is just that dichotomy considers uh, the man's uh, having two parts but a unified whole, whereas dualism has two parts that are separate and they can thus be, you know, I can abuse my body and not affect my soul. Yes, yes, I think that is I think that is fair. And Erickson's point is we've got to make sure that we avoid the inherent issue of dualism or monism. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. Um, with the dichotomous view, where obviously we must see a difference between man and ant and the animal in yes. that man does have an mm -hmm. ability to yes. choose. Like, where does that... All right, thing? now, I will say we will get, I believe, to more of the image of God here in a little bit. If we don't, I need to stop and talk more about it. But when it comes to the intellect, to reasoning powers, to conscience, to those kinds of things, dichotomists and trichotomists are going to be agreed 
that man is superior to and distinct from the animal creation in those regards. Okay. So right? it would be like the dichotomist would say that there maybe in the soul part of man there's a subset of and and what all he's going to say is you cannot divide soul and spirit that all of that is in those two terms where the trichotomist is going to try to say that you've got the soul and the spirit and the spiritual element is in the subset of the spirit. Okay. So, what would be the different ways of interpreting from the trichotomist and dichotomist views the, the verse that says um, the word of God is really powerful in terms of dividing a sender of souls? All right. The dichotomist is going to say that it is only the word of God that has that. He's going to say, first of all, that the emphasis of that verse, Shailene, is on discernment. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it goes on to say, piercing not only to the dividing soul, asunder of soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And that is the major point of it, that the word of God has this discernment <coughs> revealing characteristic. You follow me? Mm -hmm. And the dichotomist is going to say that the dividing of soul and spirit is illustrative of that, and to get only that out of the verse is to miss the passage, which at least is partly true. Mm -hmm. Okay? Uh, and then he's going to come back and say that is something that man cannot do in his mind cannot get around if there's any division, only the scripture makes it. And you've got to view man as the two-part body, soul, spirit. That's how the dichotomist will deal with that. That passage, right? Yes, sir. Um, back to the talk about um, monolism and all that. Mm -hmm. um, I understand that the, the significance uh, culturally and practically of dualism and monolism and how Someone believes that, then they they can create some pretty and see if you if you thoughts, if but. you go into the monism end of it, then you become crass materialist. The stage is set for evolution. You're nothing more than an animal. Um, that's important, obviously, to see the distinction of what. But what is what is the importance ultimately? Of being a trichotomist or a dichotomist. I mean, what is. And, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, <clears throat> it's been a very long time since I read Hodge on that subject. And I told you I had the father and the son that almost wanted to call each other heretics, you know, over, over the issue. Somebody back in the years argued that trichotomy set you up for liberalism. And I can't remember who it was or how that happened. But you have asked the question that would have prompted my old mentor, Ernest Pickering, to say, it really is something of a tempest in a teapot. Okay? And that's why he was more or less dismissive of it. I do think that Erickson and McCune have taken us have, have, until I read it in Erickson, and McCune will say that he follows Erickson at this point. He's done an interview, and he said Erickson really prompted his thinking at this point, that you don't see man as a disembodied spirit out there doing anything. It is as a created being with a material and an immaterial part, not only that man lives and exists, but it is in that combination that he is the object of God's redemption in Christ. It is in that combination that he serves the Lord in this life. And it is in that combination that we are going to exist and serve the Lord and worship God and praise him for all eternity. And that is, I think, I think a very well taken point and these two guys, I don't know if they built another box or what they did here, but they 
they they they certainly expanded and changed the the discussion. So if you're asking me what difference does it make that you are a dichotomist or a trichotomist, I'm not going to argue that it makes any great difference. If you're going to come back and argue or ask me why do we deal with this in a systematic theology class, and that is because it's there, and it, it is something that you ought to be aware of. And when we see man as a cre as a creature of God, and this body as fearfully and wonderfully made, it is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. It is that vehicle through which we serve the Lord. And we see ourselves as object of as objects of God's redemption, and God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the whole object of worship is for man to come into a right relationship with God who is a spirit to worship him in spirit and in truth. And by the way, can I throw one more thing out of that John 4 passage into this whole thing? Because it does go, you and I are the objects of redemption. In other words, this setting the stage for soteriology. And God set about to save the whole package, the whole person. You follow me? And when Jesus says that to the woman at the well, and try, try just to picture this much of it, and I won't preach to you from John 4 here, much as I might like to, but, but uh, let just try to set the stage. Here is this Jew in this Samaritan setting where the Jews don't like the Samaritans and the Samaritans don't like the Jews. Dealing with this woman who is off of the trash heap of humanity, married five times, living with number six. In that culture or this one, you can't make much more of a wreck out of your life, can you? And she says she wants to get into the Presbyterian Baptist argument. She all at once, she says, uh, he says, go call your husband. She says, I don't have one. And all at once, he says, yeah, you're right. You've had five, and now you're living with number six, and he's not, you're not married to him. She says, oh, I perceive you're a prophet. Then she gets to the Presbyterian Baptist thing. We Samaritans worship here in this mountain, and you say Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. And that's where Jesus says, the hour is coming. And now it's when neither in Jerusalem or in this mountain shall men worship God's a spirit, they even worship him, this worship in spirit and in truth. You talk about the object of redemption. There is a statement there that is so easy to skate past. You folks who are going to do counseling, I hope this, I hope this comes home right here. You talk about the compassion and the heart of the Savior. For after he says that, listen to this. In that culturally diverse setting, the sinless Son of God talking to a totally morally fallen woman, and he says, The Father seeketh such to worship him. God is seeking to bring people back into a right relationship with him. It's not done by physical means. It is done when the spirit of man comes into harmony and fellowship with the spirit of his creator. And there's nobody beyond the reach of that redemptive heart of God to that woman he says, the Father seeketh such to worship him. Now, you think about that, and then let me ask you this question. Who doesn't God love? Who is beyond the reaches of the grace of God? I mean, I got, I was getting ready to teach a course on worship, and I was preaching on John 4, 
And that statement just reached out and blasted. But the Father seeketh such to worship him. And that is that is just an amazing, an amazing thing. So I hope that kind of brings it all together. This there, there, the importance to it, Brother Nate, is that man is made in the likeness and the image of God. And we are the objects of his redemption. And we can argue about the two parts or the three parts. And I think you pretty much have to leave that resolved and say, we'll let the scripture say what it says. And, and at that point, we will at least call each other names over. I guess the important thing would be to uh, ultimately, even if there's one or, or two or three parts, uh, ultimately there is, they are together. They are it's together. Man, man is a unit. And he worship he I mean other than the intermediate state, you don't see him separated from a body. That's that's a very well taken point. And man is all the product of God's creative work, he is all the product of God's redemptive work. Okay, so yes, ma'am. Um, going back to the verse um, the word of God in five mm-hmm. Taking in the full context of it, I mean, it's talking about you know the word of God speaking through the conscience, basically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, I think it would be fair to say that the soul and spirit are not obviously already separated because the word of God divides them, and yet they're not necessarily always a unit because the word of God separates them. Scripture does make a <laughs> distinction, yes, or at least. The very least you have to say about it, and you have to say this much is, Scripture uses both terms to describe an immaterial part of man. Okay. All right. Let's. Um, anything else? Let's let's follow McCune here. Uh, Ronald McCune lists as one of the distinctives of his theological approach a recurring emphasis on the unity of the human personality as the biblical biblical psychology of humans rather than a strict dichotomy-trichotomy configuration. It seems to me he's taking a position similar to that of Erickson, and I'm quoting from Andy Maselli's interview with Roland McCune there. Uh, I probably need to go back into McCune's theology and see what else I should pull in to develop that. But he, in that same interview, he made the statement that he was influenced by Erickson as he thought this thing through. Okay? Anything else? Let's work through the some conclusions, shall we? And then we'll go on. We go till, what, 9.10 this morning, do we not? All right, good. Okay. Uh, conclusions. I'm not aware of any Old Testament passages that would support a threefold nature in man. Uh, the Old Testament supports the idea that two substances comprise the whole of man. And I've got Ecclesiastes 12, the body will return to the dust as it was, the spirit will return to God that made it. Uh, <clears throat> the prevailing representations in Scripture indicate that there are two parts to the person, not three. This is borne out in 3 John 2, Revelation 6 9, where And by the way, I do not know why this happens. I am using a standard Bible works Greek font. And from one printer to another, how how is it on? Let's see how it is here. This is the PDF form of it here. Let's see what it did. Well, the PDF form is perfectly good. So if you print out, if you decide to print from PDF, you've got it. Any of you looking at it in Word? Uh, if you if you've got the little block in there, the little, little you don't either. You're good. Wonderful. All right. I'm frustrated. It's mine. My, my copy. I've got a. I've got a little. I've got a little square in there as well. All right. Okay. We can go on. But. Uh, <laughs> God's in his heaven and all's right with the world. Who who wrote that? Uh, Is that I saw God wash the world last night? Piece of poetry. It's American poet. 
Okay. Pardon me? Uh, anyway, suitcase, a form of a, a form of suke is used as the non-material spiritual part of the redeemed. Uh, the same is true in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It seems instructive that in 1 Corinthians 5.3, Paul uses the word for spirit, benumity, uh, to describe his, his non-physical presence with the Corinthians. And in the same passage, he uses both words to describe the non-material part of man. That's why when you get into this, uh, you, you really are splitting hairs, I think. And it can be argued from the Magnificat, that is Mary's song of exaltation, uh, that soul and spirit are synonyms, Luke 1, 46 and 47. When Paul says to the Thessalonians, I pray God your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he uses only he, he only uses a paraphrasis for the whole man. He's using it to describe the whole man is what... Uh, Hodge is saying there. Again, in Hebrews 4.12, here's an answer to your question about Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Uh, the apostle says that the word of God pierces so as to penetrate soul and spirit, joints and marrow. So it is not assumed that the soul and spirit are different substances. The joints and marrow are not different substances. The, they're both material. They are both, they're different forms of the same substance. And so soul and spirit are one and the same substance under different aspects or relations. Certainly there have been and there are good orthodox men who hold the trichotomy and it should not be a cause for division among folks. That, for sure. Certain heresies in church history have turned on this point and it is important to deal with. Strong explains the importance of this debate. The view of the soul and spirit as different aspects of the same spiritual principle furnishes a refutation of six important errors. And then he lists them. That of the Gnostics who held that the spirit is part of the divine essence and therefore incapable of sin. That of the Apollinarians who taught that Christ's humanity embraced only the body and the soul while his divine nature furnished the spirit. That of the semi-Pelagians who accepted the human spirit from the dominion, who accepted the human spirit from the dominion of the original sin. That of Placius who held that the spirit was directly created by God uh, see our theories of imputation, that of Julius Mueller, who held that the soul comes to us from Adam, but that our spirit was corrupted in a previous state of being, and that of the annihilationists, who hold that man in his creation had a divine element breathed into him, which he lost by sin, which he recovers only in regeneration, so that when he has the spirit restored by virtue of his union with Christ, does man become immortal, death being to the sinner, a complete extinction of being. Wow. So there was... A lot of stuff that went around in those days. Okay, other questions? I'm ready to leave that if you are. Origin of the soul. This is one of those places where when we deal with theology, we are dealing not only with scripture, but we are dealing with having to reason <coughs> with scripture. And let's set that stage as we begin. Now, um, I don't, oh, and I, and I, oh no, I'm borrowing it. Okay. Uh, and you'll notice capital C there. I've got the footnote for some of these citations up there. This is a, a workshop study that another one of my professors, Dr. Robert Myron, did a number of years ago. But the origin of the soul, the issue is important for several reasons. Apollinarius, for example, came up with the faulty doctrine that the incarnate Christ's body came from Mary along with his soul, but that the spirit came as direct creative work of Christ, thus making Christ's soul and the spirit to come from different sources. The issue touches the origin of sin. Socially, the question of the origin of the soul has serious implications for the entire world in view of the population explosion and the question of birth control. More specifically, the issue impacts the issue of abortion. Is the unborn infant a living soul or simply a living mass of flesh? A fetus. And that, of course, is a huge debate. Myron wrote this in the 60s. That's a huge debate right up to this day. 
And some views of the origin of man's soul are non-theistic. Atheistic materialism holds that a man is simply a biological accident. A man does not have a soul separate from the function of his nervous system and other material parts. And by the way, we were talking about monism and dualism a little while ago. If you adopt a strict monism, that's where you end up. Atheistic materialism, that man's just a, a living body. Pantheism holds that a man and all other manifestations of life and existence are emanations in the, of and manifestations of the eternal, impersonal, ultimate reality. Eventually, all external manifestations, such as man, will be absorbed back into this ultimate reality. According to this view, the soul of man is practically inconsequential. Cassidy, I'm asking you because I take it you did cross-cultural undergrad as well. Did you read any of John Hick? Pluralism. Okay. When you begin to study pluralism and you'll, you'll get into it in one of your grad cross-cultural classes somewhere. John Hick is a British philosopher. That is basically the philosophy that he has adopted right there. This is not a quote from Hick, but that is basically a Hick's, a Hick's position. And it's uh, that, that there is that ultimate reality out there, and, and we might put the name God on it, the Muslim might put the name Allah on it, uh, the Buddhist and the Confucian can put his names on it, but there is that ultimate ultimate reality back out there behind all of this somewhere, and uh, that, that, is, that is where a whole bunch of that comes from. Now, creationist views are varied. Pre-existence. Now this, I think, we better take the time to talk about. Did your soul pre-exist and was it joined to your body at some point? Pre-existence is the view that the souls of men were created by God sometime in the past, prior to the time man appeared on the earth. Origen held this view and believed that some sinned deeply and became demons, others less and became angels, others still less and became archangels, some would not sin so deeply or lightly God put in the present world and bound the soul to the body as a punishment. <laughs> Origen held what I think is a cruel opinion that those born with birth defects reflected the proportion of their sin in their previous existence. Now, Lord Jesus refuted that. You remember when you had John chapter 9, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, and Jesus said neither. Those things are the result of the fall, but they are not the result of somebody's sin. And by the way, every one of you, I don't care where you counsel, you're going to sit with somebody someday who is the mother or the father of a Down syndrome infant or something worse and you will not listen to the first parent who somehow wants to blame themselves uh, maybe they will be told that this genetic defect is inherent in the father's genes, that type of a thing, and a dad will sit there and wring his hands in grief, you know, and want to blame himself for that. And I think this is a this is a good place to just stop and point out what the Lord Jesus said there. Uh, again, I want this to be practical for you, and that, this is a good place just to just to stop and make it practical. Let me do something historical as well. 
I don't know who it was that laughed when I read through Origin here. I had my head down, so I didn't see. But I want to tell you what, Origin came up with just a whole bunch of goofy stuff. <laughs> and uh, as you study history of Christian doctrine, uh, his name will come up numbers of times. And I think you have to say there were areas where the man was brilliant. And there were other areas where he was, uh, he's, he is, uh, what is the word I want? Is it spirit, the spiritualizing uh, approach to hermeneutics? He's, he's the father of that. And, and uh, you're, you're going to find, you're going to find a whole bunch of stuff. In several of my course preps this last summer, apart from origin, it is amazing how almost every heresy we know today got going the first 300 years after Christ's return to heaven. One that blew me away. You will read anytime you deal with covenant theologians and anybody making a case for infant baptism, and I've known this for years, they are going to draw a parallel between circumcision as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant and infant baptism as the sign of the covenant for the children of elect parents today. That is standard. Here's what blew me away this summer. Reading about, there were what, two or three councils of Carthage <clears throat> 252. They are talking about infant baptism. 252 AD, Council of Carthage. And the Council of Carthage, 252, linked circumcision and infant baptism. I had no idea it went back that far. Had no idea at all. And uh, now you can't say covenant theology was going then. Uh, that's a whole different story. But that whole idea of baptismal regeneration, that whole idea of infant baptism, and then that whole idea of, of, uh, of um, circumcision being tied to infant baptism at least has roots that we can find Council of Carthage, 252 AD. Wow. Do me a favor. It is almost 10 after. Let's stop right there.